the story of Jesus' triumphant or triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Kids, you might know the story well. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey to people crying out and laying down palm branches and their robes, right? You, you might know this story. This story actually teaches us about communion. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Mark chapter 11, open your phones, and put a bookmarker there because we're not going to go there just yet, but have it ready to read together. This evening, we will be physically nourished by the meal that is set before you. But more importantly, we will be spiritually nourished by the presence of Jesus in the meal that we share. That's what this is about. That's what's going on tonight. Sort of fill us tonight with your spirit. Help us to learn, to understand, and to rejoice in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. I forgot to mention that there are activity sets for kids in the back on the welcome table in the foyer. So parents, if you haven't gotten an activity set for each of your kids, those are available in the back for you. But as I mentioned earlier, we do want kids to participate tonight. So kids, if you can hear me right now, listen up. I'm going to be asking you some questions throughout the sermon tonight. This isn't just for the adults to get and to understand. We want you to walk away tonight with a greater appreciation for why we do this. Especially if you are a kid who has been baptized, you have, you have confessed Jesus as your Savior. We want you to know why we pass around the bread and the cup on, on mornings when we take communion together. So we're going to jump into Mark chapter 11, but before I do, let me give a, a few quick instructions. First, you're going to see different kinds of food, uh, both in front of you and on this table over here. The bread and the wine, mind you, it's non-alcoholic wine. So if you have any questions about that, know that it is non-alcoholic. The bread and the wine, they'll be taken together at specific times uh, in this service. And then there's the meal itself, the, the chicken, the mashed potatoes, and the veggies. We're going to eat those together after this portion of the sermon. And Jeff will give you clear instructions for how, how to do that. Also, ushers, thank you for serving. <laughs> Ushers and worship team and audiovisual team and setup team, everybody for serving tonight. Thank you for making this happen. God is glorified through your service. Uh, secondly, though we do invite everyone to partake in the meal of the, the chicken, the mashed potatoes, and the, the, the veggies, uh, we'd ask that only those who have believed in Jesus and been baptized as believers share in the communion elements. And we say this every time we take communion. Tonight, I'm going to just give a, a brief explanation of why that is, because there have been several people who have come up to, to me or to Jeff and say, hey, wh why do we do it that way? I'll give just a brief explanation. Think of it this way. Baptism is our entrance into God's house, into his family, and communion is taking our seats at his table, which is something that you don't do and you can't do in, unless you first come into the house, Right? Or to say another, another way, baptism says, I publicly identify with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. Communion says, I still identify with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. Communion, or, or, or rather, baptism says that, that the blood of Jesus has cleansed me. Communion says, I'm still cleansed by that blood. Baptism signifies, I believe that the Holy Spirit has come to live in me. Communion signifies, the Holy Spirit still lives in me. 
we can't see baptism and communion as two separate sacraments. They're on a continuum together. One signifies that we have become a part of the family, and the other is our taking a seat at the table inside that family. That's why it's done that way. So if you haven't been baptized as a believer and something just clicked in your brain, <laughs> come and talk to me or Jeff after the service. We'd, we'd love to, to talk to you about that. Finally, final instruction. The, the cup and the bread, they're a shared cup and a shared bread. In other words, you'll drink from the same cup and you will tear from the same bread as others around you, which is an expression of the fact that we, we share in the same body and blood of Jesus Christ. It is an expression of our unity that we have in Him. Now, with all those instructions out of the way, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. And parents, let me encourage you to help your kids follow along. Kids, listen up. Listen to the details of what I'm saying. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they'd cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem. And went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you bless the, the, the preaching of your word and the sharing of your table together tonight? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus has been on the way since chapter 8, verse 27. The first, the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark detail Jesus' Galilean ministry. And then at chapter 8, verse 27, it says that he is on his way. One of the other Gospel authors says that he set his face toward where he was going. And for the last three chapters, he has been decidedly on his way way somewhere. And here in chapter 11, he draws near in verse 1 to that somewhere. That somewhere being where? Kids, where has Jesus been going? To Jerusalem, that's right. He's been going to Jerusalem. 
And as he arrives at Jerusalem, listen, he doesn't just walk in. Instead, he and his disciples and the, the crowd that's been following them for this, this whole several months, they climb to the top of the Mount of Olives, which, which is really, it's really a large hill. Kids, how tall do you think the Mount of Olives was or is? Not quite that tall. How many feet tall? How many feet tall is the Mount of Olives? Who has an idea? A little taller than 20 feet. Mount of Olives is 2,300 feet tall, so not really a mountain. And it's only, it's only a few hundred feet taller than the hill that the city of Jerusalem sat on top of. So they're sitting there, they're, they're standing there looking down on Jerusalem from the top of the Mount of Olives. And Jesus says to his two disciples, or two of his disciples, don't know which two, Mark doesn't tell us, he says, go into that neighboring village, the village of Bethany. Either Bethphage or Bethany, we don't know which. Mark is not, he's, he's scarce on details here. And he says, you're going to find a cult tied up. Not just any cult, a cult that nobody's ever sat on. And if, if anybody asks you why you're taking this cult, tell them that the Lord has need of it and you're going to return it right away. Jesus knew about this cult. He had a specific cult in mind. He, he's demonstrating his, his divine knowledge here. He knows exactly which cult they're going to get. So they get it, and they do exactly as Jesus says, and they bring it back. But why a cult? Why doesn't he just walk into Jerusalem? I'll tell you why. Because he's fulfilling the messianic prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. Listen to Zechariah 9.9. Don't have to turn there, but listen. Listen closely. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And his disciples bring this colt, this young donkey, to him. Now notice, it's never been ridden. So if it's never been ridden, is there a saddle on this donkey? No. So what do they do? What is one to do in such a scenario when, when your master needs to ride this donkey, but there's no saddle? His disciples take their cloaks off of themselves and they lay it on the donkey's back. They have their own robes. And they ask their master to sit on their own robes as he mounts this donkey. So picture this. Jesus is riding down this large hill just on the eastern, on the eastern border of Jerusalem. He's riding on a small donkey. This, this donkey is probably maybe just twice the size of Jesus. Very small animal. With an entourage of 12 blue-collar nobodies, and this crowd that has been following him without, a, without him asking them to follow him, but that's been following him for months. And in the distance, in the distance as they're traveling down, they hear shouts and cheers. And as they get closer and closer, Jesus' retinue joins in on those shouts and cheers, and, and the nature of what is being yelled becomes clear. Look at verses 9 and 10. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. 
Zechariah 9.9 is being fulfilled in its entirety. Zechariah says, shout, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. It's happening. The king has arrived. He's been on his way. Israelites have been waiting for this moment for literally thousands of years. Jesus has been alive for 33 years, and he has finally arrived. The king is present with his people. And the people rejoice at the presence of their king. But, but how strange is his arrival? I mean, th- this is the arrival of the king of kings. But look at his arrival. I mean, at about the same period in history, Julius Caesar arrived after his his fourfold conquest of of four neighboring nations, and he arrived back in Rome. And you know how he arrived in Rome? With purple robes embroidered with gold, face painted red to to mimic the the god Mars. He's riding in in a a gold filigreed chariot drawn by four purebred war horses, and following him is the whole Roman army. And following the Roman army all of their captives, tens of thousands of people with tremendous pomp and circumstance. And yet here's Jesus on the colt of a donkey. Why? Why? Why is it it saddled with the robes of commoners? Why is he trailed by, by... 12 ordinary men and a ragtag crowd crowd of people from all over the place. Oh, my friend, don't forget what he has been teaching us, what he's been teaching his disciples on the way to Jerusalem about what it means to follow him. Take a quick trip. Kids, Kids, if you remember the last five or six sermons, think back all the way back to Mark chapter 8, verse 36, where he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Or in Mark chapter 9, verse 35, he said, if anyone would be first, he must be what? Servant of all and last of all. Or Mark chapter 10, 15, where he says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it with the empty hands of faith, having nothing to bring, nothing to give. Or Mark chapter 10, verse 31, many who are first shall be what, kids? Last. And last first. Or Mark 10, 43, where he said, for whoever would be great among you must be what? That's right. Servant. Servant of all. Are you getting the picture here? He has instructed us, his disciples, that greatness is humility and service. And Jesus' life perfectly fulfilled what he commanded and taught. And at the high point of everything that he has said, he said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life 
is a ransom for many. And he says that and immediately goes and models his service by mounting not a war horse, but a donkey. Donning not purple robes, but sitting on the robes of his disciples. Coming not with thousands of servants, but arriving to serve the thousands in need of his grace. This is Jesus. This is the servant king, my friends. This is the king whose presence you want to rejoice in. Because he came to be among his people, his presence among his people. But here's the thing. Listen, don't miss this. Kids, listen up. The crowds, the crowds, even though they said, yes, Hosanna, which means save us, pray. Even though they acknowledged him as as the, the bringer of of the kingdom of their father David, even though they acknowledged him as as the one who came in the name of the Lord, they still did not fully understand him because they hadn't seen his full identity revealed on his cross. They still didn't understand who he was as the son of God. And yet they still rejoiced. They still didn't fully understand him, yet they still rejoiced. Friends, how much more should we rejoice? Because He is present among us. And He brings us into His presence in a very special way in the communion meal that we have set before us tonight. Even more special, mind you, even more special than His arrival in Jerusalem. And I'm I'm not being... I'm not exaggerating by saying that. His presence among us now is more special than his presence among his people when he first arrived in Jerusalem. Think about that. Think about that. So what I'm not saying is that this bread that you, you have before you, actually take the, take the cover off of the bread. We're, we're going we're gonna to share in this meal in just a, in just a second. Make sure everybody has a piece. We can, we can tear off of that piece together and hold it in your hand. What I'm not saying is that this bread is his actual flesh, like some traditions have taught over the course of history, or that the cup is his actual blood and that it's transformed physically in the, in the moment. But listen, listen, even as you're breaking the bread right now, listen to what I'm saying. Don't, don't make the mistake, the opposite mistake of thinking that this bread and the cup in front of you are merely symbols. Because they're not. These are not merely symbols. Jesus is actually present among us. There is something real happening here. The Holy Spirit of Jesus uses physical elements to nourish our spiritual souls when we take this together. Michael Welker in his, in his book, What Happens in Holy Communion, says that Christ is really present, not in the elements exclusively, but in and through the whole sacrament, in and through this whole meal. 
The New City Catechism describes communion, and it describes it really well. If you don't have the New City Catechism, especially parents, pick a copy of it up. It's so well done. It describes communion as a celebration of the presence of God in our midst, bringing us into communion with God and with one another, feeding and nourishing our souls. There is something real happening here. And friends, we know the servant king. How much more joy should we have in our hearts than those who laid down branches in their robes before him? Not only do we know the servant king, but the Holy Spirit brings us into his actual presence through this meal. So how much more should we rejoice at his presence? This bread, let's hold it up together. This bread represents his servant's life lived perfectly for us. Let's together take the bread. As we do, Jeff, would you come up and Jeff's going to lead us in a, in a brief prayer and give us instructions regarding the meal. Before we do continue on in Mark chapter 11, why don't you just look at this cookie? I took one of these cookies from that back table and on my way to bring it up here, as an illustration, mind you, I have not eaten one, I have not eat, taken a bite of this, there were four people who stopped me and said, hey, hey, you can't, you can't eat that yet. Let's be a church who loves communion as much as we love cookies. <laughs> Listen, <clears throat> we, we will get to dessert. Kids, we're going to get to dessert, uh, but we're going to do it uh, after we have listened to the, the end of this message. We're going to sing a responsive song after, after that, and very importantly, we're going we're gonna to take the cup together. So uh, there are... There are glasses of non-alcoholic wine in the middle of the table, and remember, we're going to be sharing those together. So just know where the, the closest one is to you, and keep your eyes on it. With that being said, let, let's, let's get our hearts and our heads back into Jerusalem. So we're, we're at the point where Jesus has entered through the, the eastern gate of Jerusalem, and he's passed by the crowd who've laid down their, their robes and leafy branches to, to prepare sort of a, a, a welcome way for the incoming king. And the king approaches the temple. The temple is the very center of the city. It really is the heart of Jewish religion. It's the place where according to the Mosaic law, this is where God dwells. This is the dwelling place of God. And so if, if Jesus' destination is Jerusalem, this, the temple, is the essence of Jerusalem. This, is, this would seem to be where he is actually going, the, the, the actual locus of his destination. So as he arrives there, what do you expect him to do? Kids, think about that. If he's really spent 33 years going toward Jerusalem, and he finally arrives at the temple, what do you expect him to do? What would you expect that Jesus does at this moment? 
Would you expect him to walk in and take his seat and say, the king has arrived, and receive his messianic kingdom at that moment? That would be a reasonable expectation, right? Would, would, would he say, would he walk in and say, hey, you all, you all thought that God dwelt in here before? Well, here I am in human flesh, dwelling in the temple. You might, you might think that, that he would walk in and cleanse it of all of its corruption and restore God's holiness in the temple. He does that. He does that a few days later, but not yet and not for the purpose that you would think that he would do that. What do you expect him to do in this moment when he arrives at the temple? Think about that. You probably didn't expect him to do what he actually did. Look at verse 11. With your Bibles back open, look at chapter 11, verse 11. <clears throat> this is stunning. It's one of those ho-hum verses that you tend to pass over, but it is stunning. He's finally arrived. Verse 11, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. Like something big's going to happen right now, right? And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Nothing happens. This crowd that, that had mysteriously amassed to welcome him into Jerusalem, all of a sudden is just gone. Nobody's singing his praises anymore. He walks into the temple. Nobody cares that he's there. And he looks around. Literally, he just looks around and notices, well, it's late. I'm going to get back to Bethany. And they go back home where they reside for the next few days. It, it is the most stunning anticlimax. What's going on? What is going on in this scene? Well, what is going on has huge implications for our souls, and it really, really does. You see, it's not that the temple is unimportant to Jesus. In fact, chapters 11 through 13, these next three chapters in their entirety, they center around the temple. It is the theme of it's the central theme of these next three chapters. But listen to what author James Edwards says about Jesus and the temple. Listen closely here. He says, Jesus is not a reformer of the temple. For neither his teachings nor his ministry institutes a program of change or improvement. He is rather the temple's fulfillment and replacement. For his death on the cross, and not the powerful temple cult, is the perfect atonement for sin. The, the, the temple was built around the practice of, of atoning for sin through priests and animal sacrifices. Jesus isn't here to become high priest of that temple. He's not here to improve the existing animal sacrifices. He's here to replace the temple. Think about that. That's what's going on here. He's not going to the temple. He's going he's to identify what's wrong with the temple. Just, just wait in a few, a few chapters. But he's not there to improve it. He's there to replace it in its entirety. And the author of Hebrews in chapter 9 speaks of this specifically. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 9. He says, But when Christ appeared 
as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect temple, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Did you catch that? He's not coming to improve the temple. He's coming to replace it with himself. That is what is stunning about this. Kids, don't miss this. Kids, if you're listening, don't miss this. On the cross, Jesus replaced the temple with his own body. He became the high priest of this new temple on the cross. On the cross, he shed the perfect atoning blood that would finally and perfectly and completely atone for all sins. And it wasn't the blood of lambs or goats, it was his own blood. So he became the new temple. He became the high priest of that temple and and he became the perfect sacrifice of that temple. Jesus wasn't going to the temple, he was going to the cross. And that's what nobody yet saw. That's what nobody yet saw. Jesus is the servant king. Listen, he walked into this building where uh, of all places he deserved to be served. He walked into the temple where he deserved to be worshipped as God. But he came not to be served, but to serve. And so he looked around and seeing that it was late, he left because he wasn't going to the temple. He was going to serve us on the cross. Friends, even here at this table, he gathers us not to be served. This isn't about what we're doing. I was talking to Christopher just now, and, and he, he pointed out very well that as we take these elements, we do nothing but consume. It's like what, what Jesus said when, when he said that you, you can't enter the kingdom except if you come like a child with the empty hands of faith, coming to, to God saying, I I have nothing to give. I, all I have is the need to be filled. That's what's happening in communion. We're coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, serve us. Because I have nothing in myself to serve you with. I need to once again be served by you. I once again need to be filled by your grace. I once again need your presence with me. And the wonder of the gospel is that he does. He serves us. He continues to serve us by interceding for us with the Father from the throne. Friends, He he serves us by tonight bringing us into His presence, by by setting before us the, the bread and the cup, the very instruments of the perfect atonement that we need for our sin. These These instruments, the the body and the blood, they bring us close to Jesus. They bring us close to the gospel. Not only do we see and and hear and speak of the gospel, we consume it. Oh, we taste the goodness of the gospel. We taste the goodness of Jesus Christ. 
and it nourishes us. So, together, let's, let's take the cup.